unfortunately many times parents let go of the areas they actually have control over and they focus a lot on the areas where they don't have control. Parents often play that card of you have to obey me because the Quran says so. We need to be perfect and we can't make mistakes. Another episode of Coffee with Kareem. I am your host, Kareem Sirajuddin. Thanks for tuning in. Today I have Sister Noha El Shugayri. She received her MS in counseling and she is currently a licensed marriage and family therapist in private practice in Newport Beach, California. In addition, she is a certified positive discipline trainer. Can you tell us more, Sister Noha, about the things that you've noticed, some, let's say, concerning patterns or negative uh, items within family dynamics that has certainly concerned you over the years, and you've noticed perhaps even a pattern? Because I know that with the work that I do, there tends to be certain patterns or repeated um, issues or concerns that you find, especially I think sometimes with immigrant parents and, and their children who are born and raised here. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Um, so this is an excellent question, and uh, I guess um, I would say there are many, maybe many things that I see. Um, whether I would call them patterns, I'm, I'm not sure uh, about that. Um, I guess, yes, maybe they get the label of patterns because they're impacted by the um, social and the uh, cultural climates we're living in. And so maybe... Uh, one major concern that I have, and this is not only about the American Muslim families, it's something I'm noticing also in other Muslim countries. Uh, alhamdulillah, I go visit, you know, um, mainly I grew up in Saudi Arabia, so of course I, I go visit my family there a lot. So I, 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 am, I am observing, I, I, you know, I see, you know, what's going there. I also go sometimes visit uh, Egypt because my maternal uh, family on, on my mother's side, um, my mother's Egyptian. So, so anyway, um, I don't want to generalize, but I'm noticing this idea of there is a lot of emphasis on uh, the individual, meaning what I mean is there is a lot of focus on people wanting to be happy. And they want to be happy on the expense or at the expense of other people who are very close to them. And, and unfortunately, also people are buying into the happiness that is connected to simply material consumerism and also having fun. I, I, I it, it, you know, it's just I, I'm, I'm not against being happy, but I guess I see happiness more in terms of. Um, contentment and some people hate the word contentment they see it as you're settling you're settling for something that is not uh, a maximum or maximal for you and and I, I know I see it differently and you know I don't want to offend anyone but I, I my my concern is this emphasis on individual happiness has pushed people away from the willingness to really do things for the sake of the family unit. And we're talking, I'm not talking about big things. I'm just talking about the simple, basic things about just simply being there, which means if I'm going to be there for my family, it means I may need to cut down on how many times I go out in the evening and I'm with my friends and someone else is taking care of my kids. 
Um, that's kind of what I'm talking about. Um, so it and 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 it and and the connection in the family is stems from from really being there. There's no connection that we can actually generate just simply by I'm your mother, I'm your father. You have to respect me. You have to listen to me, and we're not spending time together. So this is one. This is one major concern that's really. It, it it's it weighs heavily on me. Can I uh, just summarize yeah, that before we hear more? So what I understood you say is um, the item of what it means to be happy, which is of course a very popular philosophy or you know um, thing that people want to achieve. Like all I want to do is be happy, or also I I want to support you even, no matter what, as long as it makes you happy. I've always found a problem with that statement mm -hmm. um, because you know. If somebody told me, look, what would really make me happy is to just, you know, let's say not get married and be able to commit as much zina as I want. I'm not going to say, oh, good for you. If that makes you happy, bismillah, I support you. Right. I mean, right. I think that's the difference, too, is especially if you have, you know, your dean, there's a standard that. At, at some point, you have to now evaluate your nafs, your ego, and your, your personal preferences as to what makes you happy. And is this actually healthy uh, according to the Islamic uh, you know, perspective? On the other hand, I'm also hearing you say, um, you know, because many of our Eastern cultures, if you will, tend to be very collective and familial based, um, we're also seeing more so people... Um, overemphasizing individual preferences and happiness over the family. And sometimes that, I think, can even happen as an extreme reaction to overemphasis on whatever the family says you have to do it, and there's no room for individuality. So sometimes when you have one extreme, you have the opposite reaction as, as another extreme. And obviously, I know from the work that you do, you definitely are all about synthesizing a middle way, right? We have to honor the family and fulfill the family, but that doesn't mean you deny or neglect yourself, but, but you also can't only make it about yourself and neglect and deny the family needs or the community aspects. What would you say to that? Yeah, yeah, no, thank you for highlighting this. It's all about the balance. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, and, and, uh, and it's all about how it's done. So there is that sense of, yes, I belong to the family, but, you know, at the same time, the family actually respects my autonomy as an individual. And this would be kind of like the best, uh, if you will, combination. Um, I experienced this in my own family growing up with my parents. Um, you know, there was always under, it was understood that everyone in the family had responsibilities to everybody else at the same time. Uh, there was a sense of like, yeah, but you can, you can, you can have a choice and you know how you want to lead your life. We're going to share with you our opinion, but it's not going to be, uh, forced upon you. This is of course, when we were adults, not, not when we were children. Um, but that balance, yes, is extremely important. You're right. And some, sometimes, though, Sister Naha, from my observation, you have parents that still expect their adult children to obey them in the same way as when they were seven years old. W what's your advice to something like that? Because I still see this, Yanni. Grown men, their mom still tells them, you can't marry this, you can't do this. I feel like sometimes I'm, I'm dealing with a, you know, 
a large-sized boy. Like he doesn't have that sense of autonomy or rujula, if you will, to make a decision himself about something. I'm talking about cases, of course, where he's not doing anything haram or or crazy. But like, let's say it's like, oh, I want to marry an Egyptian versus a Palestinian or something like that. And the mom wants you to marry one over the other. And because of that position, based on just ethnicity, they're still commanded to do what their parents tell them and they believe they have to still obey them no matter what so they kill this autonomy that you're talking about and then they but they still believe that they're doing something righteous by obeying the parents what would be some advice or feedback on something like this so what you're describing is also against the balance that we're talking about right because the balance is 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 in the middle somehow. So this one, what you're describing is basically uh, going um to the end of like the family is everything, and the family dictates how I lead my life. And as you highlighted earlier, this is an extreme. It's not in the middle. So we uh, and you're right, this is this is happening, unfortunately. In our communities, within the American Muslim communities, I, you know, I see it. It depends also on the family. It, it definitely depends on the family. Of, of course, case by case. Yeah, case by case. It depends. It mainly it depends on the prejudice within the family because the prejudice within the family is the one that's gonna kind of dictate where the family feels the need to come in in force and say this is how it needs to be done. Um, unfortunately, this prejudice, especially when it comes to the ethnicity in marriage, is is, is happening. I am seeing more of uh, more cases of families that are crossing the ethnic and racial uh, boundaries, but I I I'm not seeing enough of that. I would love to see more families from the get go, from the beginning, having no issue with this. Like I want them, I would love to see families telling their children. You know, all I care about is that you marry a Muslim. I don't care what ethnicity, what race, as long as they are Muslims and you are compatible and you guys can work it out, I'm fine. I would love to hear families saying this to their children. They, a lot of families, they begin by, like you said, no, we're Palestinians and I'm half Palestinian. So, you know, I'm going to speak about the Palestinians. So you get it. Oh, I get it. Because (laughs) when I married my husband, my husband is Syrian. So, I mean, when I married my husband and my husband is Syrian, like we're not talking about someone from, you know, across the globe. Right. He's just like next door. Syria and Palestine are neighbors. Right. I also heard from Palestinians like. Why is she marrying, you know, outside of the Palestinian uh, tribe, if you will? This is a betrayal of the qadiyya, you know, the Palestinian cause, you know. How could you do this? Fascinating. Yeah, just like, so anyway, um, so yes, I would, I would love to see more families understanding that the only way the American Muslim community and the Muslim ummah, not only the American Muslim community, the only way that the Muslim ummah can actually thrive, thrive, is by crossing the ethnic and the racial boundaries. And that's exactly what allowed for Islam to spread to, for, to the Far East. I mean, if, if we were, as, a, as, a, as an ideology, if we were that narrow-minded, Islam would not have gone to, you know, Indonesia and, and Malaysia and mashallah, you know. That was spread through, you know, through the traders because they understood what is the essence of Islam. It's not about the tribe. It's not about the ethnic group. It's just about this global ummah. 
Now, now let me ask you this. So we've discussed, um, you know, uh, this large theme of overemphasis on collectivism or the family needs and commands and individualism and the personal preferences or needs and demands and we want this harmony so how what would you what would you say would be a tip or two for somebody who's on the individual side to keep in mind towards their parents and what what tip or two would you have for parents that maybe are on the other side of it's all about the family it's all about what the parents uh, say and command how would you advise each end so I've been in that situation where I had to actually, you know, I had clients who are young, you know, Muslims who are struggling with what their parents want. And I've also had families who've, who've been struggling with their own young adults and, you know, the, the clash of differences. So I've, I've been in that position already, you know, many places, uh, many times, I mean, but over different issues, maybe. So for the young, I'm going to begin with the young adults. With the young adults, I uh, I always tell them you no matter how much you um, disagree with your parents, you have to always be respectful. But respect is different than obedience. Respect is respect, meaning I'm talking to you uh, in a civil uh, way. I my tone is uh, is low. Um, I am not making you know gestures. I'm not yelling. I'm not screaming. You know, like the Quran describes, you know, the respectful way of addressing one's parent by not saying oof. And like oof is just a small word. Like it's really tiny, but tiny. It's it's not a curse. You know, like it's not like you're cursing your parents, but it's the attitude. Like oof is an indication of an attitude of, you know, um, uh, get away from me. I don't care what you say. I, you know, I, I don't respect you. So, so this is what we need to keep in mind. And that's the thing I tell my young adults all the time. Say so you have to always be respectful, no matter. And they tell me sometimes, but they abuse me. And I, I've been in situations where I have young adults where they have been abused by their parents. I'm talking real abuse here. Right. You right. know, and, 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 and in those situations, really, they break my heart, like, I need to understand that the, because of the abuse, their dynamic with the parents is really somewhat different. So right. in some situations, I, I tell the young adults, it's okay for you not to have a very intimate and close relationship with your parents. It's fine because we understand you're coming from this place of abuse, but you still have to be whenever you're with them, that respect still needs to be in place. So that's my number one tip, is always respect, because that's the Quranic injunction. That's what we were told we need to do with our parents. So that's number one. Number two, when it comes to the disagreement itself, the issue, the topic at hand, and most of the time, the issue usually revolves around the choice of spouse. This is most of the cases that come you know, through my office. It's like because the, the young adult wants to marry someone, who the family is not approving of. So we go through steps with this one. First of all, I, I sit down and I make sure that the young adult is really compatible with this person. Like we, I have a list of compatibility that we go through. So I begin with that and make sure that the compatibility is really in place. After that, I say, okay, so what have you done in terms of talking to your parents? So we process that, we assess that. 
after that, uh, if there has been no hope and, uh, you know, uh, no, um, no shift on the parent side, then I invite the young adult to invite somebody from the community who the parents respect to talk to the parents. The last, last, last resort is for, the, is for me to tell the young adult, if you really feel so strongly about this, then, you know, go ahead and, you know, marry against your parents' wishes. But you have to know, you have to know what are the ramifications of that, that the relationship with your parents is going to be impacted. And, and you need to make a decision about what's more important to you. So this is kind of, anyway, with the, with the woman specifically, because the woman, um, in, according to three schools of thought, she needs a wali. And if her father is not agreeing, and there is actually no valid reason for the father to disagree, then I invite her to go to the imam and, and get the imam involved. Mm-hmm. Or perhaps another male relative or family friend that could, could understand that perspective and support. If, 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 you know, if she can have someone who is willing to be courageous enough to do that, because this is right. someone who's going to go against the father, right? But you, so usually it's safer to do it through the imam, you know, safer for the family members, just because the imam has, uh, first of all, from an Islamic point of view, like uh, uh, that's actually a right that's given to the qadi. So I see the imam in the U.S. as taking on the position of the qadi in Muslim countries, because the woman can go to the qadi and complain that her father is doing what they call in, in fiqh, adal, which means he is becoming an obstacle to her. This is like a case. Yani it's, it's an actual scenario in Islamic fiqh. So, so she goes and she tells the qadi that her, husband, her father is doing adal and the qadi has the authority to marry her over the father's objection as long as the, um, the uh, you know, intended is actually compatible. Yeah, subhanAllah. That's, um, I mean, like you said, it would take a lot of courage, but it's almost like I'm hearing you say, it's like, look, you're going to suffer either way, or it's going to be difficult either way. Which path do you want to uh, be challenged through, either to marry or not to marry? Mm-hmm. And which one do you feel you, you have more sakina with as far as your decision perhaps between you and Allah and, of course, the practical um, outcomes that will exist. Because in, in some situations, a person may say, Tayyib, I'm going to marry this person because they are good, they're Muslim, all of these things, but they just happen to be a different ethnicity or a different socioeconomic class or whatever the barrier is. But then they also have to accept if they're willing to deal with the fact that some parents may, yani, they've threatened the children. They say, if you do this, we're going to disown you or we're not going to come to the marriage or we're not going to talk to you. So that's sometimes sure. a very big mm. um, yes. effect that people also have to keep in mind because it's not that easy. But sometimes I've seen also, Sister Noha, that subhanAllah, sometimes it's a it's a test or a way that Allah awakens or purifies the parents in these situations where they also, yani, eventually it's like, I can't believe we haven't spoken to our daughter or our son in two years. And why haven't we? Because they went against our wishes. Well, which wish was that? Oh, well, they married a Muslim good man who happened to not be our ethnicity. And then sometimes this helps the people, the, the parents themselves realize 
what kind of um honestly i want to say almost like a disease of the heart that they had and and then this is a way that allah opens and gives them fat and then they come around and and sometimes it ends up uh being uh, more of a happy ending and we pray that 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 ends up being the case for most people inshallah actually if not all amen amen per- perfect yeah so now sister no i'd love for you to share with us a couple of tips uh, for the parents who are in a similar situation where their child is too involved in this individuality and uh, personal preference of how to do things? So I usually tell the parents, uh, number one, um, I talk to them about understanding the limits of their responsibility towards their children. And I emphasize, meaning like they are not responsible for their children's action. And I always emphasize the principle, Islamic principle, that no no soul is beholden for the sins of another. And I emphasize that this is actually a principle that is mentioned in the Quran five times. Wow. Like this is, this is like it's not one time. It's actually five times in the Quran in the same, the same it's phrased the same way. You know, which which to 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 reassure the parents that you have done your part and when the kids are young, and when they become young adults, now the ball is in the court for the court the young adults court. They are making their decisions and they're responsible for their decisions. However. I tell the parents, you still have the responsibility to actually share with your children in a non-coercive, non-forceful way, um, what is your opinion about what's going on, you know, or what's your opinion of the intended. You have to share your opinions, but not with uh, emotional blackmail, like you were saying earlier, like, oh, if you do this, we're going to disown you. Um, and, and I'm not talking here about, you know, um, major sins, okay? So let's be clear. We're talking about things that are halal, but but the parents see a different view on what the children wants to do. So it could be marrying someone across ethnic lines, or it could be change, uh, choosing a college major, for example, that the parents don't like. So I say, okay... Uh, understand the limits of your responsibility. Number two, definitely always, always, always share with your children what you think. Uh, because sometimes parents, they tell me, oh, I don't want to make him upset. I'm like, what? <laughs> I mean, please, you need to share even if it's painful. And of course, when I tell them you need to share, I'm not talking about share. go ahead and share and, and humiliate your children. That's not what I'm talking about. Talking about healthy communication, open, healthy communication. Yeah. Hey, son, I'm worried about you. If you were to marry, you know, for example, Fatima, is uh, you are going to be, uh, your children, for example, are not going to be able to speak Arabic. Okay. If Because Fatima doesn't speak Arabic. Sure. I'm just giving a random example here. Okay. So, so sharing the concerns is very important. And then sometimes, sometimes there has to be some kind of um, limits from the parents. So one example, I had a family where the child, the not child, the young adult went to, to college, wasn't doing very well in college because he was just having fun. He was just partying and having fun. So uh, we sat with, I sat with the family and I said, okay, so what can you do? I mean, first of all, the family is paying the tuition. I said, 
okay, is this acceptable for you that he's not working hard and, you know, he's going and he's just partying? They said, no. I said, okay. Then you just simply say, we're not going to pay tuition if you're just going and partying. So you need to come back home or, you know, you need to go to the community college next door and raise your, your GPA. And once we know that you're working hard, then we can actually pay for your tuition, for example, to go to the college of your choice. Unfortunately, many times parents let go of the areas they actually have control over and they focus a lot on the areas where they don't have control. So they preach a lot, they, um, they nag the children a lot to change their behavior, the, the children, I mean the young adults' behavior, but they don't look at, okay, what can you do? What are your boundaries? What boundaries can you actually put in place and enforce that would be useful? No, oh, that's great. That's great. And actually, a couple of other things that you have parents often play that card of you have to obey me because the Quran says so. But from my research, and I could be wrong, those verses of the Quran that uh, refer to parents, it, it, from my r- recall, it says, ihsana, like have ihsan with your parents. And that means excellence and goodness and character. Now, sure, that includes obedience when your parents are also operating within the boundaries of Islamic thought and and values. But, I mean, it also doesn't mean you have to blindly obey your parents, which I think is something that some youth or or children of parents often assume. So that's one correction that I think helps with this idea of harmony. And then on the other end with parents, as you mentioned these examples, sometimes parents themselves are resistant to talk about certain things because they're afraid of the reaction, they're afraid they'll hurt them, or they sometimes don't know how to talk to them. So once I was at a masjid and we were talking about having discussions around sexuality and puberty with your your children, um, and some parents were like, but this is is really hard how how are we supposed to do this or this is really awkward and uncomfortable and i said well how much of that is based on the subject and how much of it is based on you know just how you feel about it because these things are talked about in the Islamic tradition. You find in the Quran and Sunnah references to these things. The ulama have have written about it. And so I'm also hearing you say that sometimes we also need to brush up on our communication skills and our knowledge on certain topics so that we know how to compromise better, we know how to resolve issues better. And and these are, of course, skills that all of us um, should be tuning up as much as possible along the way. Do you have any resources or recommendations for parents or youth to improve in, in some of these uh, tools that you have offered today? So for the parents specifically, alhamdulillah, Allah has blessed me and my colleague, my dear, dear colleague, Munira Azzadeen. And we, alhamdulillah, we we actually uh, wrote a book and it's called uh, Positive Parenting in the Muslim Home. And uh, in the book, uh, we, we describe, first of all, what is positive parenting. We make a connection with uh, the Islamic. We try to, to explain what's the Islamic understanding of parenting. After that, we um, we discuss 49 tools um, for parenting, and then the, the, then we divide the um, the journey of parenting from zero to I think we're about 25. We divide them into stages, and so we 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 take every stage and we talk about the main challenges within that stage, and you know how to deal with it. So related to the conversation uh, we're having, we just had, um, the, the section, we have a section for teens, parenting teens, and we have a section for parenting young adults. 
So the issue of many, we discuss many issues in, in, in those two sections in particular, and some of them are taboo subjects, like you're saying. One of them is the sexual sexuality issue and everything related to it, including the sexual orientation, because this is really a an issue that's happening right now in our community where parents are not don't know how to deal with their right. children who are coming out as uh, um, LGBTQ. So we actually address this in the book. We also talk about when, you know, there is issues over marriage choice and, and, and career choice and so on. The last part of the book is a collection of essays. Um, some of them written by me, some of them by Munira, and we have also guest writers. But also related to the conversation we had, I had a, I, I wrote an essay and I called it, I named it uh, Blind Birth. Because in the Islamic paradigm, the Islamic tradition, we talk about how you need to treat your parents, and we use the word bir. And bir is this beautiful, expansive uh, word in Arabic that basically includes everything that is good. So, uh, so they talk the the concept of how to treat you know, and you you use the word ihsan from you know the Quran because that's how the Quran talks about it talks about, you know, um, treating your children, your parents, I mean, with ihsan, and never, never, there is nothing in the Quran that says, obey your parents, nothing. It's all about this ihsan piece. The only issue when, with ob- obedience, if you will, it comes when, when uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that um, if your parents are asking you to do what is forbidden, you do not obey them. That's the only verse that talks about obedience, if you will, as a relation to the parents in the Quran. So, so, but within the Islamic narrative, we 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 uh, the scholars have coined the word the ver- phrase "bir al walidain." Um, so I called it "blind bir," just exactly because what you said in terms of there is a misunderstanding. And it's not only amongst the youth, it's actually amongst the parents, where they believe that their children owe them blind obedience. And that, that needs to shift by, with education, because, because in the Islamic, you know, uh, Quran and the Sunnah, we actually don't get that impression. But it's something that we have imposed on Islam. And we said, yes, you need to obey your parents blindly, and it's completely untrue. Thank you so much for clarifying. So for those of you listening, um, Sister Noha has a practice called Sakina Counseling, which I will have the link for, as well as the link to that book that she mentioned. And there's also PositiveDisciplineMuslimHome.com. Sister Noha, would you like to offer any closing feedback or advice for the audience regarding healthy Muslim families, parenting, and children? So, um, okay, I think uh, number one, uh, which is something I learned when I uh, got trained in, um, in, in, in to become a trainer for positive discipline because it's a specific parenting philosophy. Um, and it's something I knew before, but I like, uh, I, I like the emphasis on this concept, which is basically applicable to anyone, which is basically mistakes are wonderful opportunities to learn. So whether you're a child, you're a parent, 
whatever you're doing in life, it doesn't matter where you are, in what sphere, in what context, any mistake you make um, needs to be reframed and needs to be seen as this beautiful gift of learning. And sometimes, unfortunately, in our community specifically, because we have a lot of these ideas about we need to be perfect and we can't make mistakes. And there is shame, you know, there is this shame is somewhat pervasive sometimes. Anyway, so the shame is attached to mistakes. Um, And I'm not talking about sins here. I'm just talking about mistakes, usual mistakes that we make as we go through life. I mean, because because we're not perfect. We're human beings and Allah told us we are going to be making mistakes. So understanding that it's okay to make mistakes, not intentionally, as long as as we are learning a lesson from, from, from that mistake. So with parents specifically of young children, because they do a lot of mistakes, I, I, tell the, I teach the parents, I tell them, when the mistake happens, uh, it's very important that you ask your child, what are you learning from this? And maybe the first couple of times the child isn't going to tell you anything. I say, don't worry. And you don't need to spoon feed them a response. Allow it to be. But every single time a mistake happens, ask the child, what are we learning from this? And it would be wonderful, I tell my parents, if you actually can role model this to your children. If when you make a mistake and your children see that and you say, you know what, this is what I learned from this mistake. So this one is a, uh, a major, um, you know, if you will, mental shift for many parents because actually they are teaching, they are raising their children unconsciously believing that they have, to, they have to get their children not to make mistakes. There are many parents who are operating out of this paradigm that no mistakes are allowed and I should, if I will be a great parent if I actually have children who make no mistakes. Right. And that can end up having almost an obsessive paranoid mentality as well, this over-perfectionism. And I love that you reminded us of this because it's also a concept that I also share with the work I do. And another way to frame that is, maybe you've heard it before, fail means forever acquiring important lessons. And I love that. How nice. Very nice. You know, it's like, think about it. Every time you fail, I'm forever acquiring important lessons. And that adds this beautiful shine to it, like you're describing. So thank you for that. That's a great tip. Second tip, which is being lost nowadays, unfortunately, with our uh, lifestyle, because our lifestyle right now is basically 24-7. We're on 24-7. Um, there is there is no need to abide by any kind of um, uh, routine like in in you know before you you had people who were living on a farm they had to abide by you know the farm rhythm otherwise there would be no harvest um, so now so for me it's extremely important that we become intentional about our routines. And routines are important for everybody, not only children. They're important for adults as well. Um, if they provide routines, uh, I was reading this book. It's an amazing book, and I anyone who loves to read it, you know, I invite people to read it. It's called uh, The Paradox of uh, Choice. 
I, I think that's what it's called, uh, paradox of choice. Yeah, I think it's, it's a it's a bestseller book, so you know it it will come up if you Google it. Um, so anyway, so he is talking about in terms in he he was talking about routines, and he said what routines does for you is that it eliminates anxiety about making choices every single day about things that are going to happen. If you know that you're going to wake up in the morning, pray Fajr, you're going to wake up at this time, pray Fajr, read Quran, go for a run, read, and then do your tea or whatever. Coffee. You don't need to wake up or, or coffee. Yes, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'm a tea person. <laughs> so, so you don't need to wake up in the morning and ask yourself, what am I going to do? And that elimination of this constant constant questioning of what am I doing next actually is empowering it's grounding and it also a lot it frees your your uh, mind to really focus on important things right so going back to cherishing routines not out of rigidity no but out of respecting that routines provide safety they provide organization they provide grounding. Uh, I cannot tell you how many times I would have had like a lousy, lousy day. And then, you know, I feel grounded just through my routines. Like I wake up in the morning, I don't question, you know, oh, yesterday I had a lousy day. So let me just start by watching a movie in the right. morning. Okay. I don't do that. I wake up, I follow my routine, even though I'm feeling miserable. But just going through the routine by itself, you know, brings that peace and brings that sense of grounding and reminds me of who I am. So I am, I'm, I'm really disheartened to see that the, the importance of routines is being lost in the family, uh, just be simply because we can do anything anytime we want. Uh, and so I would love to see families going back to really cherishing that and uh, and appreciating the wisdom you know in 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 that so that uh that's my number two you know the family routines and part of the routines for me is like families having rituals where the whole family comes together which would for for example be having dinners together every day this is so crucial for the cohesion for the bonding for for the love and i hear sometimes families telling me that Oh, uh, my kids don't eat, so that's why I sit in front of the TV and I feed them in front of the TV just so they can eat. And I'm like, okay, we lost all this golden opportunity of bonding because the children are sitting and watching TV while they're eating. No, that's great. So tip number two is about the power and importance of routine because it gives the human being a sense of structure, of order. It reduces anxiety and ambiguity because you actually have predictability in your life. And I would also add, when you have routine and structure, you also have function and purpose and it gives your life more meaning than if every day you wake up and I might spend six hours on my phone doing nothing or I might go for a walk or I might, I might. This doesn't allow you to actually prosper and progress as a human being. So even structure... 
uh, even though you're doing things over and over again, but that's exactly how you learn or master anything in your life is with repetition. But one thing I want to ask you about that wonderful tip, Sister Noha, is what about the people that say routine is boring? Yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> I want something more. You know, I want something more. I'm sick of the routine, the same old, same old, right? Some people have that mentality or attitude. What would you have to say about that? Excellent. So I, I get that a lot, actually. So when we're talking about the routine and structures, we're talking about the big pieces of the day, which means like, how do you do, how do you wake up in the morning? And you know, what do you do? And uh, what do you do at night? And dinner time, for example, also, and if, if you um, go, if you work, then that's also become part of the big pieces of your routine. But then there are times within your day or within your week uh, that are can be free in terms they can be uh, they 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 don't need to follow a specific uh, order you can do different things within them as long as the big pieces are in time are in place I mean sorry and you enjoy you will enjoy flexibility and fun and doing sporadic things if you will because in contrast to your routine and discipline, that's why it feels fun or it feels relaxing or whatever, right? It's kind of like when I was, I remember when you were in school, you know, summer vacation was like heaven, you know, like, oh mm -hmm. my God, we love this, right? But the only reason why summer vacation was so amazing is because, you know, nine to 12 months of the year, you're in this routine and discipline of school. But the person who, let's say, hasn't been in school or working for three years straight, they lost the sweetness of even fun. Because yes. there's nothing to compare or contrast to. Um, yes, yes, absolutely. And subhanAllah, that I, I, I always wonder about the, not wonder, but I marvel at how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in one of the short surahs, uh, Surah Quraysh, he talks about the routines of Quraysh, which was the tribe of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu and, and so he's talking about like this is a blessing that he has given them. That they have the routine, they have, you know, the trip in the during the winter time, they have the trip during the summer time. You know, you think about it like this is like why would Allah why is Allah talking about this? I mean, why is this important? But it's again about the safety in terms of like, yeah, I know what is happening, I know how I'm doing things, and so I feel confident about myself and I feel uh, grounded. So tip number three would be something, again, that we are not doing enough of, unfortunately. Again, it's because of this emphasis on the individual, is deep listening. And what I mean by deep listening is really understanding what the other person is saying. So not focusing on, I'm listening to you because I need to have a rebuttal or I need to come back and prove you wrong or I need to shoot down your argument, or any of that stuff. Yeah, just waiting to talk. Yeah, just simply really listening to the other person, understanding where they're coming from, and without feeling threatened in any way. Just like understanding that that person has a right to their opinion, and I could have a different opinion completely, but it's okay. We do not need to, uh, we don't need to agree. Like as a nation right now in the U.S., we have a crisis of listening. We're not listening. Like we from, you know, I mean, nobody's listening to, to anyone else. We're just talking over each other right now. 
and everybody's screaming because they want they want to be heard but they're not listening to other people right and but you know at least we have a really good example in our president for that <laughs> sure <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> deep listening is going on when i see those interviews <laughs> absolutely and when you read the tweets absolutely yes so so let me ask you this, sister. How do we become deep listeners? So the first thing you said is when you're in a conversation, it shouldn't be one of those things where you're just waiting to talk, waiting to rebuttal, but you're actually trying to understand what the person is saying. So how would somebody who has no idea what you're talking about start to tap into that? Yeah, so this is not easy. This is a very difficult skill. Uh, I have to tell everyone who's listening. But it's really very rewarding if if anyone can really start practicing. It's very simple, actually, in in how it's done. But it's human nature prevails, and then you feel the need that you need to actually speak over someone else. Anyway, so I I think the easiest way to make sure that you're listening is what I call not what I call, but in psychology we call paraphrasing, and kind of like what you were doing in in the podcast right today. So like I was talking and then you would paraphrase what I was saying and you will add some more stuff to it. But this paraphrasing is the first step in deep listening. And then by doing that, you ensure that you're checking in with the other person. So if you are paraphrasing and you're saying something and the other per- and then the- you're saying something wrong, the other person goes, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Or this is not what I said. And then we can have a real conversation. When I have um, couples come into my office and they complain of miscommunication, it's it's always, always because they actually made assumptions about what the other person has said. And these assumptions are coming from their own head. The, you know, they, they take what they are listening to, they add their own layer to it or their own interpretation and they, then they make it as, as truth or fact. So when I slow them down in the office and I say, okay, we're going to start practicing paraphrasing, and they become frustrated with me. They go like, oh, my God, Noha, this is really stupid. Ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, what are you doing? And, and then they tell me, we can't talk like this at home. I said, it's okay, but in my office, this is how you're going to talk. And they start recognizing how they are actually misunderstanding and misinterpreting and, and how this paraphrasing process actually slows the communication down. And that allows us to have this deep listening going on. Excellent. So let me paraphrase. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. So com- healthy communication and deep listening. Okay. So communication, um, let's define it as sharing information because that's actually the Latin word for communication means that to share. Um, so sh- we share information. The other person paraphrases. And if it's not accurate, then the first person has to clarify. And then you continue from there. This is very important, as you said, because if we're running on assumptions or misunderstandings, this can lead to a lot more conflict because we're not actually deeply listening to the person. We're engaging with the assumptions or the script or story we have about the person rather than what they're actually trying to tell us. Would you say that's a good summary? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Akramakum <laughs> Thank you so much, Sister Noha, for your valuable time. And um, and I hope to have you on again soon, bi'ibnillah. 
Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please support us at patreon.com slash coffee with Kareem. Links are in every description of every show. And leave us a review today on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you can. We love the validation. Visit nudehuman.com to work with me or others on the team for personal relationship and family enhancement.